and uh, worship leaders. It's good to be with you again. I'm Dave Mitchell, and we're going to be going through the book of Galatians. We encourage you to have an outline that uh, we make available for you. You will find it uh, a convenient way to kind of keep track and know how quickly we're going to be done. And so uh, it's helpful in that way as well. We're in the book of Galatians. Galatians is all about this whole theme of uh, challenge between legalism and works basis, uh, versus faith and trust in the Holy Spirit. Boy, that song we just sung, that the Holy Spirit would flood our hearts. That's part of what Paul is going to appeal to as we go into the text here this morning. He wants us to get rid of this foolish faith. And so let me set up the text this morning with uh, one of the great theologians that I think can say it maybe sort of the way Paul meant it when he talked about the foolishness of the uh, Galatian believers. And it's none other than Mr. T. Y'all remember the A-team? Remember the A-team? I, I'm old enough. I remember the A-team. But Mr. T, Mr. T is a follower of Jesus Christ, and like me, he's a Bible thumper. And uh, I want you to hear what he has to say that's similar to what Paul was going to say. I don't hate Balboa, but I pity the fool, and I will destroy any man who tries to take what I got. What's your prediction for the fight, then? Prediction? Yes, prediction. Pain. So, if you don't get it right pain. But I love the, I guess what I was thinking about, I I pity the fool, pity the fool. You'll see why that's so relevant and I'm so current with my thinking by using Mr. T. Watch this. Let me read the text for you. We're going to spend most of our time in the first five verses of Galatians 3, but halfway through the book, it's a wonderful book, people of Galatia living out their faith. Paul was a missionary. He would travel around a lot. He didn't have a, a kind of a home camp so much. He had multiple missionary journeys, and he would go through this area. Today we call it Turkey. It was called Asia Minor, the Galatia region of that Asia Minor. As Paul would travel along there, you see places like Antioch, Iconium. Uh, They are sometimes referenced in some of his writings as well. So this is the territory that he's talking about. Let me read the first five verses. It's 18 verses altogether, but I don't have enough time to do all 18. So I'm going to zero in on the first five. He says, you foolish Galatians, foolish Pity the fool. All right. Who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit and the works of the law, or by learning? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with a spirit and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? In those first five verses are five questions. We're going to ask and answer those questions, and I'm going to drill down on that last verse in verse 5 and little camp there for a little while. So Paul is coming to them, and he calls them foolish believers or foolish people. Avoid the foolish faith by learning the answer to these following questions. And what is this? First of all, the question, what is a foolish faith? It's when I try to gain salvation or favor with God by my good works and not through Jesus Christ. This word foolish that Paul uses there has a connotation of mental laziness. Paul is exhausted with people who, that he writes to, that he's discipled. They're new believers. They're sort of learning it. But he says you're becoming mentally lazy by not understanding, by not pursuing it, by not digging deeper to get it. And then he says you're also being bewitched. The word bewitched means to be charmed 
by deception. They're being led away by these Judaizers, these Jewish people that came in and said, if you're really a good follower of Jesus, you're keeping the ceremonial, the civil, the dietary laws, you're being circumcised, you're living the life that we had to live growing up, and now we're going to make you live it as well. Paul says, don't be bewitched, don't be foolish, because you need to get your eyes back on Jesus who was publicly, publicly portrayed. It was like a big banner of his crucifixion. So he says, I want to get away from the foolish kind of faith that is driven by works and legalism and gaining favor with God by doing good works. He says, I don't want that anymore. And then secondly, the second question is this. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Not by my efforts, but by faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And that song we just sung. Are you being flooded by the Holy Spirit because you're keeping the laws, the Ten Commandments? the civil and the ceremonial and the dietary laws of Moses of the Old Testament, by being circumcised, that give you the Holy Spirit? No. Don't do good things to somehow gain the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 talks about that. He wants us to have the Holy Spirit because he comes and he baptizes us. As Paul writes here, this is similar to 1 Galatians 3, 28. You've been baptized, you've been changed. To be baptized is to change my identity, become something different. From a sinner to a saint. And so they've been changed, and so they've become a brand new body. The Jews and Greeks, slaves or freemen, they're all, they're all one, united together. Galatians 3.28 says the same thing. You're no longer slave nor freeman. You're no longer male nor female. You're no longer Jewish or Gentiles. You're all one body. You can't gain that by working hard. You're given that by trusting Christ. So just bring him back to the basics, the foundational things that he has. Third question is this. How can you be perfected in holiness? By keeping the laws? No. By the same Spirit that saved you, he'll come in. Are you so foolish, he says again? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? I'm saved by faith, but i got to work really hard to be perfected in my flesh, in my body, in the things that I do. I have an illustration of that. I uh, have used to wash all of our cars of them, both of our cars, by hand in my driveway. And uh, I didn't trust the electronic uh, devices of car washes and other individuals because I didn't want them to get scratched. I've come up with this beautiful place now, $5, five minutes, my car is clean. Right down in the street on Tustin Avenue. Y'all try that, five minutes, $5, five minutes. Am I the only one that uses that place? Man, okay, good, thank you. Well, we should have coffee over there sometime. But actually, we have to sit in our cars to drive the whole thing. And that's the beauty of that. So you go to this car wash, much like this one you see on the screen. You sit in your car. There's a guy there that has the magic wand and hoses your car down. And then he points to a sign. And the sign says, put your car in neutral. Don't touch the gas or the brakes. Take your hands off the steering wheel. Let Jesus drive the car for you. And then you allow... You allow this car wash, you, suddenly there's this device that catches a hold of your wheel and just pushes you forward for the next five minutes. And I'm telling you, there's something renewable about that in my spirit. You know, like that, I just sit there and say, so all these devices, the water and this brush, it's going like this and the spring and the, and the, and the soap, and then you can actually buy 
you can get car waxed at the same time. You have these things that will dry your car at the very end, and you got this other device that does this stuff on the wheels to make them look shiny and black like it's brand new, and even though my car's 15 years old. And so it's an incredible experience to go through that, and it's carrying you along doing all the work to cleanse you. You know what Paul is saying? That's what the Spirit of God wants to do. He wants you to sit back and by faith believe that the same Spirit that saved you is the same Spirit that's now going to cleanse you, keep you holy, walking the walk, living the life, righteous in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says the great exchange. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that's Jesus, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took my sin, Dave Mitchell's sin, put it on Jesus, and then he says, here, Jesus, give your righteousness to Dave. The Spirit of God's going to come, he's going to cleanse him, make him one with God, holy God in heaven. I'm going to be as holy as God is, not because I keep the works of the law, but because the Spirit of God's in me. God says, that's a miracle. And so you just let the Spirit of God carry you along, and he will cleanse you. And we work so hard to be righteous before God so he'll love me more and I'll have his favor and get answers to prayer. God says, don't play that game with me. I want to give it to you free of charge. Because then he goes on to this next interesting question. Paul writes there, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So Paul asks, did you suffer, you suffer in vain? Paul says, you will suffer in vain if you think that your suffering will gain you favor with God. And by suffering, God owes you something. That by doing good work, somehow God now owes me. So he'll do better things for me. I'll get the job. I'll get into the school of my choice. I'll get the grades I really want. I'll get that car. I'll finally have that apartment. No. If you think that God owes me something because I've suffered then I'm working on this legalistic gaining favor with God by my good deeds or my willingness to suffer for Jesus. So now God owes me. Paul says, don't play the game where what I do gains favor with God. God says, I don't, I don't play that game with you. Don't play it with me. When I suffer, I may or may not see any good results from it. But if it advances the gospel of Jesus Christ, then God says, we're good, we're good. So this merit-based kind of relationship with God, he says, I reject that. Legalism, gaining favor with God by keeping the laws, circumcision, etc. And then this, this last one is where we're going to spend some time. This last question is this. Does God's spiritual power work in me because I keep the law or because I walk by faith? As the Apostle Paul writes, the original text so then, does he who provides you with a spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is God doing what he's doing in your life because you're keeping the Ten Commandments, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws of Moses, and there are hundreds of them. The Pharisees have added to them. Will I somehow have a better outcome by God by keeping those laws? Paul says, look, He's not going to do more miracles in your life because you are keeping more laws than somebody else. He didn't play that game either. So again, all this legalistic kind of gaining favor by being good. And so let me, let me now turn the storyline to a different angle. 
to say it in a different way. For example, let me bring you back to my handy-dandy pyramid unity chart. This is something that I've been thinking about. I think I uh, developed this chart like 30 years ago. So it's not sort of, sort of off the top of my head. And what I like about this, because it helps to frame things for me, is I'm going to illustrate for you here in a moment. But just a review. Right down here are foundational truths. These are truths that God has said, and God says it, and it's true, and I believe it. Nothing that happens in culture, society, there is no peer pressure that's going to make me think differently about those truths. Truths like Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. That the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it is infallible, it is trustworthy, it is the final revelation from God for me to know him and how he wants me to live. Those are some foundational truths. Then there are supplemental truths. Uh, I have an opinion about certain things. You have an opinion about certain things. Your opinion may be, let's just take the Bible, for example. If you know that there are many translations of God's Word, you may like the New King James Version. You may like the, uh, the ESV Version, the NIV Version, all these uh, acronym versions. I like the New American Standard Version. It's fine. You, you've got your version. i got my version. Those things just doesn't matter. God says, just get one and get back to studying it and learning how to live your life. And then there's incidental things about how I feel about certain things. And it could be in worship and how I feel about what color the seats should be and stuff like this. It's just incidental. So we're going to get caught up in that. Now let me put it into the Galatians world. And then I'm going to put it into our world. The Galatians world is this way. What Paul was just asking, those first five questions, the first five verses is this. Right down here is God's truth, foundational. And that is that faith alone in Christ alone is the gospel. By God's grace, I am saved. And then he gives me the Holy Spirit that saves me, and the Holy Spirit cleanses me like a car wash where you take your hands off the wheel and just moves you through life, and the Spirit of God comes on you and gives you the righteousness that you can never gain on your own power. So this is foundational. Paul says, that's where I want you to live, right there. It's a timeless truth. Here's the problem. There are sometimes, and and historically this is true in the church, where we get people that come in that sort of know better than us about what God really intended. So in those days, in Galatia's days, that first century church, those new believers, there's some Judaizers that came in and said, we know better. We know that if you're really going to be following Jesus, you're keeping those Old Testament civil, ceremonial, dietary laws. And you're going to be circumcised. And then you're really going to have favor with God. You will gain his favor. You will gain his righteousness by keeping these temporary practice laws. So they were taking these laws, putting them right over the top of this. And Paul says, no. No, God doesn't want us to live that way. Don't create new laws that makes you look more spiritual than all those others that don't keep those laws. That's what Judaizing is is all about. That's what Galatians is all about. Taking this, and there's nothing wrong with those laws. They're good. They had their day. They were relevant to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. God gave them to Moses. There's value in reading them and learning from them. There are temporary practices, but there are timeless principles that come out of it that we should obey. We should understand that. So we study to learn and gain. But we don't take those temporary practices and layer them over what is foundational. And that's what sometimes we do today. An incidental is, you know, uh, two Sundays ago, 
dress, for example. I used the illustration way back in the 50s and the 60s, which I know sounds like uh, light years away. But I used the illustration that came out of the days when I was growing up as a kid in the church where this track was passed around that had a woman in pants. Remember that? A woman in pants. I'll show you the picture of the woman in pants. And this guy wrote a scathing criticism of this organization that they would dare show a woman wearing pants. Because this woman, because this guy that wrote it said, women wearing pants leads them to want to smoke and create crime. That's what he said. And we're thinking, oh, what, what is this guy, an idiot? Well, he is, yeah. But he took women wearing pants and he layered it way down here. He was a Judaizer of today or like the 50s and the 60s. So he took what dress and how often she had communion, what time should you meet in church. It would be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Friday night, Saturday night. we got a lot of options. So when you take some of these incidentals and you begin to layer it over this, God says, now you got some 21st century Judaizers coming into the church today. There are Judaizers that come into the church, and they think they know better as to what we should believe and how we should live and God says, I want you to, I want to get you back here. I want you to live here. Now let me illustrate it one more. Well, several more. I love this verse. I've taught in this verse here before. It comes from Jeremiah. The Jewish people are going to be taken captive in Babylon. He wants to give them hope. So he writes this. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a, uh, a rich man boast of his riches, but boast in, and I'll show you something else. But there are three things that we shouldn't boast in. God says, I don't want you to get all caught up in who's the smartest, who's got the best intellect. I don't want you to get all caught up in who's the most powerful, who's the president of the company and who has uh, 200 employees that work under him or her, who's the most influential in the school, who's the class president. Who's the one that has the most powerful position? We all kind of, oh, wow, they must be so, so much more special than I am. I don't want you to get caught up in riches. Wow, so-and-so has X number of money in the bank. All these investments, all these capital expenditures, all these facilities that this person owns, I've got so much less. And they go, whoa, look at that person. Or sometimes there's a spiritual pride of how much we have. Sometimes there's spiritual pride and I have so little. And so I am, a, I am more of a servant's heart to Jesus because I have so little. So God is saying here, three things. Wisdom or smart or intellect. Power, strength, position of influence. Or riches, wealth. God says, they're good. But man, you don't live there. That's not what you boast in. That's not what's important. He goes on to say this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness for on the earth. For I delight in those things. I delight in that. That's my sweet spot. That's where I want you to live. This is the same principle as Galatians. My sweet spot, God says, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith alone by the Holy Spirit's power to make you righteous. I don't delight in the laws that you're trying to impose upon my Jewish people or my Gentile people. Same thing for us. Take these same principles here. Put it into my handy-dandy chart. Foundational truths. God says, I want you to know me. And as best as I can understand, I want to understand you. 
to know and to understand God. He says this, that he am um, loving, I am just, and I am righteous. God says, I delight in that. That's where I want you to live. That's what I want you to be a priority. Now, don't boast about your intellect, your power, your wealth. I'm not saying those are bad. I'm just saying that's not what I delight in. Because as we get into this realm where we make this the most important thing and I layer it over that, then I'm living in this world of competition and comparison. Because I think that's where, that's where God shows me his favor. Because I'm smarter than someone, I'm richer than someone, I'm more powerful or influential than someone else. I live in that world and it's a defeated world. Because there's always going to be somebody richer, always someone smarter, always someone more powerful. To compete and to compare this, we're all unequal. We will never have fairness there. But right here, baby, right here, we can all be one. We all can be in the same sweet spot of that which delights God. And then on top of that, some of the incidentals that come out of this, what kind of degrees I have and how many letters after my name, what my job is and how influential my job seems to be, what kind of home, how big it is, how many square feet, what kind of neighborhood, what kind of car do I drive. Wow, newer, fancier, more technologically advanced cars. And when we live here and make these things something so important to me that I am either depressed or encouraged by this when God says, that is not nearly as important as this. I want you to live here. I want this to be your world. Now, these things, my intellect, my power, my wealth, they should empower me to know God and understand him. They should empower me, my intellect, my power, and wealth, to be more loving, more just, and more righteous. I have my wealth, and I will use it for the cause of the love of God, the justice for God, the righteousness of God. Some people today, they don't live in this world at all. They don't know God. They don't care about God. They would be a self-acclaimed atheist or agnostic. And they have no interest in this. So they live here. They live here, getting by. And it's empty. And it's defeated. And it leads nowhere to what God ultimately wants for them. We've got to live here. And then however God blesses or doesn't bless in this realm, you say, God, I'm still with you. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to be pursuing your justice. I want to pursue your righteousness. That's the world I want to live in. Because God says, I don't delight in these things. As much as we work to make those things important to us, I don't delight there. I delight here. That's the key. Now let me transition to another topic. Using the same principles again. It may sound like, well, I thought we were in Galatians. Where are we talking about? Galatians principles, again, are foundational truths to the gospel of Jesus, supplemental truths, keeping the laws, but don't move the laws to the foundation of pleasing God by being righteously doing his good deeds. Let's take marriage. This whole thing of gay marriage. We're all going to have different opinions about that. But the Bible says that marriage is between one man and and one woman. That's what the Bible says. God said it in, in uh, Genesis. Jesus reaffirms it in Matthew 19. 
Jesus reaffirmed that there's two genders, male, female. Jesus reaffirmed that a man and a woman are marriage. Jesus defines marriage. That's what he says. That's it. There's no other kind. Now, where some of us get caught up in a church like ours is how do I relate? Should I go to a gay wedding? If I'm a florist, should I make flowers? Remember these stories? Should I make flowers for a gay wedding? If I'm a baker, should I bake a cake for a gay wedding? How should I relate to people who have a different definition of marriage or what a wedding should be all about? Well, there are all kinds of marriages, not just gay weddings and straight weddings. There's all kinds of marriages out there. I deal with them all. There are marriages out there that are filled with adultery. There are marriages that where the heart of the man or the woman is filled with heart adultery of thinking lustful things of another man or another woman. Or sometimes it's physical adultery. We've had them here. I've met with people who are maybe sitting near you who have committed adultery. And what is my relationship to them? That of love and kindness, grace and truth, bring them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gay wedding? What should be my attitude? God never said how I should express my love to all the different kinds of marriages. God simply said, this is what I believe marriage is, and I want to encourage you to bring the gospel to all these other kinds of marriages, be it heterosexual or homosexual. How will I ever reach someone for the cause of Jesus Christ if I say that I can't love you, I can't attend your event? Because God says right now this, how I relate to people in different marriages does not change what I believe down here. My relationship with people who are in sin does not change my definition of what marriage is. I don't do it to the adulterers who have come to Calvary Church, who that I've met with, who we've counseled with, where we God bless his Holy Spirit for saving their marriages. I don't say, oh, I can't be with you because you've sinned adultery, nor do I say that to those that might be of a gay persuasion. There are some couples where the Christian marriage is a non-believer. That's a different kind of marriage. I don't shun them. I come alongside them, keeping my definition in place, but expressing my love to them the way Jesus was attacked viciously by the Pharisees because he dared to dine and eat with sinners. Jesus related to sinners because they need Jesus. So do we. And so there are then these ceremonial things and locations and ages of marriages and weddings and things like that. Just, it just doesn't matter. In the church, at the beach, who cares? As long as we have the foundation. Now let's go one more level in terms of marriage and relationships. There's God's truth that marriages and all relationships, for that matter, as I thought about it, should be a relationship of love and respect to one another. That's biblical truth. Ephesians 5, there's so much in Scripture. This is a rock solid. I should relate to people in love and respect and be just like Jesus to them. That's foundational. Now, in marriages, we then want to develop that, and we've got supplemental ways that that takes place. It's through communication classes. So I learn how to communicate more effectively, and sometimes we do it well, and sometimes we do it poorly. It doesn't mean I don't love someone better because I don't communicate well. I just don't communicate well. So I don't make communication inability define the relationship. It's just something I have to learn. Stewardship, how I manage my time, my funds, separate 
checking accounts, one checking account, how we should manage the funds to have a budget. These are all practical, good things. So we, we make those things areas that, that helps us to live out the truth of love and respect. And so we take all those date and date. We should spend time, quality time, quantity time. We date back and forth. But simply because I don't always get those communication, stewardship, and dating things in place in good form, it doesn't negate this. These don't negate that if these aren't doing well. I just got to learn better. Now up here, we got incidental things. We buy things as couples. We buy things as friends. We furnish an apartment that maybe I'm renting with a friend. I get a car. I get a motorcycle. I get pets, cats, dogs. More dogs than cats. But you get the idea. There's different things. Now, now let me illustrate this. I've mentioned this before. Way back when Joy and I were first married, which is like 41 years ago, on our first anniversary, I bought her what I thought was the perfect gift. I bought her a Black & Decker Dust Buster. Remember that? I've shared that with you before. Because I thought, what a, what a wonderful tool. We're setting up this new household. We're living in this uh, dive of an apartment in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I thought, wouldn't it be practical for her to have a handy-dandy battery-powered dust buster right there in the kitchen so when I spill my Cheerios, she can just get down there and <laughs> vacuum it up? How convenient could that possibly be? Aren't I a wonderful husband to think so considerately of my wife to make it more convenient for her to clean the kitchen floor? Right? Are you ready to throw things at me now? Well, I bought that thinking, honestly, I really thought this. <laughs> I really did. I thought it was an act of love. <laughs> Thank you. Dustbuster? It wasn't very long after I gave it to her, I realized I think this was a mistake. <laughs> but let me applaud my beautiful bride, Joy Mitchell. Joy took that dustbuster and she thanked me for it. And, and she never let on that she was actually kind of disappointed uh, that it was a dustbuster. It seemed kind of insulting and chauvinistic. She didn't say that, but, you know, after you lived with someone for 41 years, you sort of catch on. <laughs> and so I bought that dustbuster and it was an Really, an, uh, just a thing, just a thing. But here's the beauty of my wife. Now, she had two choices. When she opened up that ugly wrapped package of mine and pulled out a dustbuster and said, oh, it's a dustbuster. She could have said, oh, you don't love me. This is so disrespectful. This is so offensive to me. I can't believe you would treat me this way. Like I'm some sort of a house slave for you. How dare you give me something so insulting as this? Is that what you think of me as just nothing but your slave in the home? Is this the kind of marriage we're going to have? This is even a marriage. It's not the kind of relationship I ever wanted in when I married you, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> she could have said stuff like that. She did not. She did not. She said, thank you, Dave. Thank you. You're thoughtful. I know you love me. And in her heart, she's thinking, 
it's hard to see how you love me with this gift, <laughs> but I know you love me. Because I do. I did then and I do now. You see, I didn't buy a dustbuster to maliciously denigrate her. I bought a dustbuster because I thought it would be a loving, kind gift to her. It's a big difference. She did not penalize me as a man who does not love her. She did not penalize me as a man giving her a dustbuster simply because I did a stupid thing. That was stupid on my part. I freely admit it. I still do stupid things. I could tell you about on Friday when I cut down part of the tree and crushed one of her plants. I still do those things, but it's not out of a malicious, willful, denigrate, put down, dismiss, hate. I did not allow, she did not allow the incidental to take the place of the foundational. Get it? Her love for me and my love for her withstands the, the fickleness of these things. That they're just things. I worry about my car getting scratched, but that's the world we live in. It's 15 years old. If I should have my motorcycle scratched, then that really does, that really does go down there. So there's, that's, uh, that's probably the only exception to the whole thing I'm saying right there. But you get the idea. You hear what I'm saying? If you go back to Galatians, the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't let the works of the law and some do-gooder Judaizer come in and tell you how you're supposed to live your life. On the other hand, don't let some do-gooder come along and say, oh, a dustbuster, you must hate your wife. No. Please hear me. It was dumb, but it wasn't out of unloving relationships. And God bless Joy Mitchell. She saw it that way. She saw my heart. The intentions were good. The execution was terrible, but the intentions were good. Please, don't let these things dominate, destroy, or undermine the very foundational truths that God has given to us, whether in marriages or friendships. If you're renting a room in an apartment with a friend, if you're in a dorm with another friend, don't let things that seem a little off-center undermine this. Go back to the basics. And that's what Paul's talking about, to get us grounded in what's foundational, what's true. So then he goes on, and we don't have time to get into it, but he says, man, look, in the Old Testament, it wasn't all about works. It was about faith. Even Abraham, even Abraham believed God by faith, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. This is 430 years before the laws were written by Jacob, after Jacob, I should say. 430 years before any of the laws were in place, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're living by faith not works. He says, even the Gentiles, we are blessed by God. They're justified. The Gentiles were justified by faith in the Old Testament. We're blessed as Gentiles by Abraham. That's why the Jewish people bless the Gentile people, because Abraham, the first Jew, brings that blessing, that seed that goes all the way to Jesus, and then Jesus spreads it all to every other Gentile and Jew who believes in Jesus as Messiah. And so we're blessed, but it's all by faith. It's not by works. Abraham didn't work his way to God. I don't work my way to God as a Gentile. And so therefore, Paul says, man, I don't want you to be under the curse of the law. 
Don't let the curse of the law. Don't let good, do good Judaizers of today come and say, I know how you should live your life. This is what you should do. No, go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they're trying to set regulations and, and have these standards that, that God says they're just not important, please don't create new laws, new regulations that override the so fundamental truth of the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the freedom that comes through that. So he says, for as many of the works of the law that are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in them to perform them. But the freedom is this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree, and that's Jesus. I so passionately want you to understand. Don't let all, sometimes there's some real ne'er-do-well Christians that want to come and set up new regulations about this is the way we live our Christian life today and have these standards and requirements. And God says, no, just come back. The Judaizers of the days of Galatians did it. Don't let people do it today with the incidental and supplemental things that sometimes we get right and sometimes we don't, but that's okay if we come back to the foundational things to know God and understand him, to love just righteousness. That's it. Go there. So as we come before the curse of the law, I don't want any of us to labor under some curse of some law that whether 2,000 years ago or yesterday is somehow squeezing out of us a heart of faith and freedom in Jesus Christ because Jesus came to set us free. He took the curse of the law and put it on Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to take communion now and to remember the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that he came to set us free, to give us that new liberty, to take the law of the, the cursed law of the Old Testament and give to us all the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. He wants us to enjoy the new life that we have and uh, to be wise and discerning to any contemporary Judaizers that want to come in and kind of steal away the faith that he truly wants us to enjoy. So let me pray for us. The elements are going to be passed. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ. The cup symbolizes the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Those two sacrifices of Jesus, that on that cross his body, his blood, was, was crushed and bled so that we could have his righteousness free of charge. Beautiful. So as you take your elements, we just hold them and I'll come back up and we'll eat them together, remembering Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, help us as we gather together in the communion time to remember what you say is most important. That God, there's a lot of things that sort of capture our hearts and we become maybe distracted by the things of this world, the home, the car, the bills, the finances, the stewardship, the ugliness of life around us. God, all these things can be so distracting to us. Help us to remember what really counts with you. God, to keep our heart and our focus and our mind on those things that count for eternity's sake. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would live our lives in love and justice and righteousness. To know you. To understand you better. And however you've gifted us, that our gifts and our skills would magnify you. Thank you, Father. Through Jesus, as we celebrate it through these elements, he has given us that freedom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.